Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Inez once again. Um, Inez, how's things going with you? It's good. We just moved into a new new apartment that's much nicer than our old apartment. So uh, even by New York standards, our old apartment was terrible. So we're very excited. What prompted the move? Just the fact that the apartment was really, really terrible. It just awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even okay. by New York standards, to clarify. So this was a very low bar. Yeah. Well, good for good for you. I'm glad. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're more comfortable. You've got some elbow room now. Is it bigger? Is that is that the thing? You're just smushed before. Yeah, it's bigger, and it's it's not one of those tenement buildings. I was living in one of those tenement buildings in the Lower East Side, and I kept imagining what it would be like to live there with a whole family with five kids, the way that it was originally, and grandma, and you know, uh, because it was bad enough for two people. I felt like it was really, really cramped and not laid out well. It's just very narrow. It's um, they call it, I think railroad car design, where it's just very. I mean, there, there are lots of parts of the apartment I could touch with both hands. So how many like, how many square feet? Um, I, I don't think they even posted it, but it wasn't the square footage. If it had been arranged differently, it would have been small, but okay. But it, the fact that it's so narrow, you know, I, just, I don't know. To me, it was claustrophobic. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy. I'm pleased. Yeah. Well, you, you ever see those memes where it's like, oh, uh, like in the 1950s, you could have a family of, you know, four and you could have a, a car and a vacation on like one salary. And then people like smarter people will point out like, actually, if you want to live in 1950s, uh, standard of living, like you could still you could still do that in one income, right? Uh, so yeah, people just they had their needs were their needs were different back then. There's there's a really uh, great debate um, recommended to me by Batia Unger Sargon and um, between Oren Cass and then some folks over at AEI. I can't remember unfortunately who his debate opponent was, but it was on that very question about and and I have to say I thought Oren Cass was very convincing. Um, Basically saying that, yes, there are there has been an escalating standard of living, um, but but also that some of the uh, things that were extremely are by their nature fundamental to American middle class life. Those things have gotten more expensive, even if like so overall, I think his argument was overall middle class life in America um, has gotten more expensive vis-a-vis people's wages, uh, even though many elements of it have become cheaper. Like essentially the, some of the most important elements have not. Um, so anyway, so it's an interesting back and forth. Maybe we can, maybe we can watch it. We can argue it out last time. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm just skeptical. I mean, I'm old enough just to remember when I was a kid and like how nice things were and like what people could afford, like in the 1990s versus today. And it's just, it's just a different, it's just a different world. Like, you know, if you want to live in a, like a four, you know, if, uh, you want to have like five kids and live in like, you know, a two bedroom apartment, like you could do that. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that today. Right. And so, yeah, I, I have a, there's things we could be doing better, but I think it's just so hard to make the case that like, we're not significantly, significantly richer um, than we were. I don't know. So for example, uh, the square footage is more expensive by many measures. My understanding is. Right. So uh, forgetting it for a moment, how many kids you put in the in the square footage, um, the, the average price of, of a house, even adjusting for inflation, the square footage price has gone up. That's yeah, pretty, I don't doubt that. like a pretty important fundamental. Yeah, shift. I don't doubt that. But people, people have more appliances, you yeah. know, I, I don't doubt that. But people do have more money and people, you know, the people like you can just look at space, how much people space people have. Um, and it's we have much more space. We have much more space today. Now, there might I mean, be regulations relative to income, though. So like all of these measures, they, they measure based on median income and then median housing price. So it's not like they're ignoring that people are making more money. 
Um, but even accounting for the fact that they're making more money, housing prices have gone up more than people's salaries have. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, housing is, housing is a scarce resource, right? And it's been more, more scarce by regulation. So I'm not surprised that, you know, it's like one thing could get, one thing could get more expensive, right? Without making actual life harder. You could prioritize, right? If housing is more expensive, look, you're saving, you know, whatever, food costs 50% less, clothes costs 50% less, transportation costs, right? All this stuff less. You, you should, if, you know, overall, you're just wealthier, right? That's why you need sort of the the holistic. Uh, I, I guess I just I I don't agree because it depends what's important for a good life, right? You can't you can't just uh, divorce sort of uh, what it looks like to have like a good middle class life from the underlying. So, like, yes, the good middle class life in 1950 didn't include a smartphone, right, at all, a laptop, right? Um, so, in that sense, it's very difficult to compare. But for example. Here's three major costs that are, I think, worse for Americans than they were in the 1990s, let alone in the 1970s. I, I don't, I actually don't know going back to the 1970s, but um, housing costs are worse relative to right raising salaries. Um, college tuition is massively higher, even relative to, to higher salaries, and healthcare costs are massively higher. Um, and yes, it's true that those, well, some of those products, you can say, like for example, with healthcare, we are getting a better product for more money, right? Uh, I don't think anyone wants to go backwards to 1970 in terms of, of the type of tests, for example, that are available, that might be more expensive, right? We might be extending people's lives at the end um, for, for longer, people live healthier lives for longer, maybe that that increase is worth it. But nevertheless, it is an increase. And then no one, I don't think with a straight face can argue that the, the value of a college degree, either financially, or um, like sort of intrinsically, you can't argue that people are getting a better education today in the average university than they are in 19, you know, 1970, right? And the cost of, of that college education is massively more. And it is comparatively more important to have a degree because more and more jobs require a bachelor's, even the same jobs that didn't require them 30 years ago. So those are all, I think those are all genuine stressors on the ability to quote unquote, get into the middle class, right? Well, the healthcare, the healthcare one is interesting because, I mean, most people don't, I mean, almost nobody pays the full sticker for uh, insurance with the Obamacare subsidies. I mean, you're covered, you're pretty much covered until, I, I remember during the Obamacare debate, it's some ridiculous amount, like 100000 or something, like the government basically subsidizes um, your entire health insurance. So most people do have it subsidized through their employer, which government gives tax breaks for. So the healthcare costs, I don't know, like someone is paying for it. have correspondingly gone crazy up. Right. So like, I don't know what before Obamacare, I have a very like concrete example before Obamacare. Right. I was in my early 20s and I wanted very basic coverage. I wanted to be responsible and get the coverage, but I didn't want, you know, I didn't anticipate using the healthcare system very often. But if I got hit by a car or got cancer, you know, I wanted to have coverage for it. Um, And as a 22 year old woman, I was purchasing a five thousand dollar deductible plan where I had insurance after that was almost entirely paid for. It was like 90 something percent after $5,000 a year, but everything under that I was responsible for. So I was paying in cash for anything minor that I might need, but I was covered if something bad happened to me, which I think makes perfect sense for a young person, right? Um, to, to take that deal. And my premiums were something like 80 or 90 bucks a month, like something very reasonable for that reason. Like the chance that a 22 year old, woman is going to have something that's going to cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars is relatively low. So 
that makes sense. It's like what insurance is for. After Obamacare and the regulations came in, I was still getting insurance from an employer then because I'd actually decided I didn't want it from the employer because I preferred my cheap insurance. Um, Anyway, so I got it from the employer. And it's funny because after basically Obama railed against those kinds of high deductible plans, and mine was $5,000, it was was phased out for that reason um, because it was somehow irresponsible or exploitative, right? Uh, But then after my deductible, it started at 3,000. So it wasn't that big difference to begin with. And then it went up. Now $5,000 deductible is over the course of a year is a normal deductible. It's not like a, a, you know, so because the cost has gone up so much that that it's not unusual anymore to pay $5,000 out of pocket per year. In addition to much higher premiums, you know, premiums are hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month. And it's, it's now I have like, for many times more money, I have worse insurance with a higher deductible than the thing that was called exploitative by Obamacare. And that is a cost that's going up. Now that might just be me, but I don't think it is. Uh, sorry for opening up an open, <laughs> an open <laughs> wound. I was going to ask if you support Obamacare then to make health insurance more affordable. And apparently, apparently not. Uh, the um, No, but it's a different question. Whether are we wealthier versus are we specifically, are specific things more expensive? Because you, you, you need math to total it all up to say like, do, is, is it more achievable? Is it achievable to live like a good life? You need math yeah, because it's not you, just math. You, it's math. Right? It isn't just math because it depends what, what things are essential, what things you determine are essential to a quote unquote middle-class life. Well, right? Food is essential. So, Clothing is essential. Obviously you can't take out food, right? Yeah, but, right? But for example, something as simple as, as, okay, laptops, right? That, that in 1950 doesn't exist as an expense in, in, let's say, uh, in 1990 through, um, today in, in 2023, laptops are, are much cheaper, like a personal home computer, really laptops weren't even common in 1990, but a personal home computer, much, much cheaper than it was in 1990, 2000, right? Um, so that's an incidence of something that's going down over time. But you could, you could just as easily say the most important things for a middle-class life, even if everything else is cheaper, you still quote unquote have to get these things. You have to, to get housing. You have to get healthcare coverage, right? And you ha- you have to, you know, if you want your kids like sort of striving, I, I disagree with this, but a lot of people feel this way. You have to send your kids to college. All of those expenses might be non-negotiable in terms of, of feeling like you're living uh, a middle-class life, whereas maybe getting a new car is not, or, or especially all the gadgets that are in the cars that are making them more expensive, right? Maybe you don't care about the gadgets in the cars and you, you, you actually would be perfectly happy to get a car without those things, but you can't drop the housing cost, right? That's that's sort of a, a big one. So it is yeah, a matter can, of values and not just math. But you can have a smaller, I mean, you can have smaller, like if people were willing to live by 1950s uh, standard of housing and of space, housing would be very, very affordable, right? So this, I mean, this is the reason why we don't compare countries like GDP based on like one you know, think because, you know, you have to sort of, you have to take the whole, a lot of the stuff is, uh, you know, you see it like you agree with me, psychological. Okay. You feel like you need an elite university degree uh, to, you know, to, to feel. Yeah, that's not just psychological. Like, so I, I disagree to some extent that it's necessary, but it, the, the background economic factors are, are not psychological. In other words, it is more difficult today to get an entry-level job without a college degree than it was 30 years ago. That's not 
a psychological fact. That's a exterior world fact. Yeah. And, you know, you can get, I mean, and there's, you know, affordable, you know, there's community colleges, there's local colleges. I mean, in-state tuition is not all that expensive for a, a public it's school. It's as expensive as it was in 1990. Yeah. And there's, I mean, inflation adjusted dollars. You're, you're right. I, I don't agree. I don't disagree with you that some things have gotten more expensive. The question is, I think what the org cast people is trying to do, maybe argue with them or you, is they're, they're basically trying to indict capitalism. These people don't like capitalism. They want to they wanna say, we need to agree with Elizabeth Warren on economics because American life has just gotten so terrible. And I just think that that's wrong. The things that suck are the things are the things that government has gotten most involved in. So that's education, healthcare, and housing. I mean, those are like, it's a perfect sort of relationship in the whether government has gotten involved with it. But I'll still, I mean, I'll still defend the capital system. It's so good that like just the things that like government has stayed out of have gotten so much better than the things that government has screwed up, have screwed up, but you know, we still, we still manage. This, so know, maybe, maybe I'm halfway in between you and Oren, which is to say, I think he's right to essentially, to put it into math terms or budget terms, right? I think he's right to score on a dynamic baseline. So there is something essential and important about the American dream being something that's achievable generation after generation. And yes, like the fact that the the American dream is more uh, in 2020 than it was in 1950, but that, that is actually part of the American dream. The fact that children, each generation of children does better than their parents, um, I think that is a valid underscore sort of way to think about um, actual costs instead of just comparing like in a sort of miserly way. Okay, well, technically you have more than your grandparents. Um, but but I, I think that baseline is what Americans expect. They expect that they will do better than their parents and they expect that their children will do better than them. And I think that is now much more dicey than it was 30 years ago. So that's one where I, where I do agree with you is, and I've, I've had this discussion with Warren Cass as well, um, and, and would like to continue it with him, but no, I mean, you're right to point to the fact that some of these biggest pressures on middle class, like these are not free market economic systems, right? Um, our, our, our college tuition system is not a free market system. Our healthcare system is not a free market system. Um, actually, they tend to be the, the place where costs are so extravagantly ballooning it seems to me, are these public-private relationships where we neither have socialized healthcare like Europe, which, to be clear, I don't want, right? But they have a method for controlling costs. It's called death panels, right? I'm exaggerating for effect, right? But they determine who gets what treatments for what price. There's a fixed amount of money being spent in the system. But that is a way of controlling costs, Right. Whereas if you had a free market system, then people's own pockets determine, but there's still a value proposition and still some kind of control on the cost. What we've done is this weird hybrid system in both the cases of universities where we have private universities making a crap ton of money. And actually public universities are for this purpose are private in the sense that they're, they're, you know, um, they, they are taking money intuition from their, they're not fully public in that sense, right? Um, but they're free at the, the uh, user endpoint, right? So you have these hybrid half where you have a lot of people making a lot of money in an environment that's heavily, heavily regulated, heavily, heavily subsidized with, with plenty of both uh, of distorting factors from, uh, from government and regulation in them. And housing is, is I think, most intractable of those three, but to some extent that's true about housing as well. Like it might not be true in Manhattan where there's just only so many 
miles of one island. And if everybody wants to live there, like it's going to be expensive. Um, but there are also pl plenty of places where it's not as true. Like San Francisco is completely allergic and the Bay Area generally is completely allergic to building housing because everyone wants it to hold the same um, you know, aesthetics as 1950 in California. And in my view, it's, it's been a disaster. I mean, people can't afford to live in the Bay area where their jobs are, unless they commute three or four hours round trip outside of the Bay area, because people refuse to build dense housing, right. Um, in, in a very dense environment. So some of this is caused by government, some of it's natural, but I, I, I do, I guess I do agree with the uh, Oren's bottom line though, that I, I think the sensation that people have that it's more difficult to achieve and you're right, it's partly psychological, but it's more difficult to achieve the middle class life for the average, you know, uh, family in America today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. How many people and how, how much is it that people are just worse than they were a generation ago? So I know a lot of people who, you know, I know I knew a lot of kids growing up who just do drugs all day, who just sit around, who do who, who can't work a stable job. Let's say you're the exact same person that you were in the 1970s. Like maybe it's harder. You can look at the data and say, well, you know, there's there's disparate impact of society on on Zoomers or whatever versus Boomers. Um, but like if you're today, if you are a person today who's just like who had like like 1970s like value of just like showing up on time and like working hard and not complaining and not asking for that much. You know, I wonder at the extent to which like, you know, the, the, the bad outcomes to the extent they exist are just, are just diseases of wealth because the people I know who just, you know, sort of just, uh, who just, uh, you know, sit around the room all day playing video games and, you know, abusing substances often it's because like they can afford to do that because they have a, they have a, um, they have a roof over their head and they have air conditioning and they have, you know, mom is going to, you know, put the food in the uh, fridge and either because culturally we became less tolerant of that, or maybe people just couldn't afford to support like adult children forever. While like today we can, because we have built up so much wealth over the decades, um, you know, like what is the what is the um you know what what is the what is the effect of just like the, you know this kind of cultural sort of degeneration uh rather than any economic issue well i mean look these two things are tied together and it's it's to some extent a futile debate as to which one is the primary factor i think both are obviously factors um i'll give you one economic like concrete example and then move to the cultural side but Economically, right? If if you are, um, let's say, you are a moderately intelligent, moderately hardworking person, and you graduate from high school today, you are going to be going to college. You're going to be taking out substantial student loans to do that. And when you graduate into the market, you'll have a burden that the same person in your position, right? Let's say that that the person thirty years ago worked harder. Even so. Um, you're going to have that burden and housing is going to be more difficult for you to purchase both because you're already coming in to early life with substantial debt. Um, but, but also because as we just discussed, housing has gone up uh, in, in cost in terms of the available houses on the market, whether they're bigger or not, right? Like the available houses, if you go to Zillow, you will not be able to afford at the same rate as the person 30 years ago. So that's economic. Um, in terms of cultural, it's, this is a question that I thought about a lot, I think, uh, when Donald Trump was running in 2015 and 2016. Um, and, and the way that I've been phrasing it to myself in the, the debate that goes on in my head about this is if the economic situation of 1953 
came back to Detroit tomorrow, right? Like, forget about how we do that, whether it's, you know, tariffs or the free market, but like, we snap our fingers and the same factory jobs are available in Detroit as they were in 1953, where there was this enormous boom of wealth coming out from that part of the country and Detroit in particular. Um, I, I read recently uh, that Detroit during World War II had an industrial output, just the city of Detroit, comparable to the entire country of Italy. Okay, so like, this is an enormously productive um, city with great middle-class jobs for both black and white Americans. Um, not always easily coexisting, but nevertheless, um, if we could snap our fingers and the jobs part of that equation came back tomorrow, my question, and I don't have an answer for it, um, is, is, are the people who currently live in and around Detroit or the people who would move there for those jobs, um, even if they were good union wage jobs, how many people are capable of showing up at 8 a.m. working a full 10-hour, 8-hour day, right, um, passing a drug test in order to work on a factory floor, right? How many people, comparatively to 1953, um, are culturally prepared to, to work even one of these, like, very generous um, in terms of, of salary and wage and in terms of the ability of someone without, like, a huge background in education or, or many years of experience to be able to be trained on the job? Like, all these things are economic factors, I agree, but I, I find it hard to believe that even if we snapped our fingers and all that came back tomorrow, that let's say within five years that we would be able to field the same kind of workforce. Because I do think that there has been an enormous amount of cultural degeneration. I think a lot of that has to break down the family, though. No, you're absolutely right. I remember when I was uh, when I was going to University of Chicago Law School, I lived in my childhood home uh, right on the uh, in the south suburbs. So I drive, you know, 30 minutes. I drive through the bad part of the of the city. And um, there would be like occasional liquor stores, usually not much commerce going on at all, but like occasional liquor stores. And always they were owned by immigrants, like always, always in Indians or Middle Easterners. Um, from what I saw, this is the true, this is, you know, this is true across American inner cities. Now, like what's preventing Americans, blacks or whites or anyone else? Um, from opening liquor stores or uh, convenience stores in Aaron City. Well, it's dangerous. Like you get shot. Like the life expectancy, you know, is, is not is not great um, uh, in the, in these areas. So like, there's a risk. Um, but it's also, you know, takes some ambition and, you know, you I mean, you could, you could sort of, you can afford, try to afford security. They put up the glass. I mean, it's, 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 it's a tough life, but there's no barrier preventing Americans from doing this, right? The only people willing to go into these war zones and actually have, uh, you know, actually have like businesses that serve the locals are immigrants. Um, right. So sometimes I'll hear like the populace be like, oh, immigrants are. Like they're 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 hurting the inner city. Like no, like if the immigrants weren't there, they wouldn't have you know they wouldn't have stores at all. I mean, the fact that there's any convenience stores, there's anything in a lot of these cities uh, is you know thanks to thanks to immigrants. I mean, you can see it just drive through any uh, bad part of uh, uh, an American Midwest city. Um, but anyways, let's uh, yeah. So they, we we got sort of sidetracked with these economic oh. stuff. Can I can I just add one thing before I wrap this up? Um, I think what you're describing is a real phenomenon in terms of of. And if you talk to any small business owners, right, there's a reason that they're hiring immigrants over, you know, often people who can't speak English, right, over um, people who can't speak English and their fellow countrymen. It's not, you know, pure wage stuff. Um, it, it, it's also the ability to get someone who's not going to, you know, who's going to show up on time, who's not going to uh, call out sick con constantly, like 
uh, you know, for mental health days or whatever, uh, there are real, uh, like, I don't know how you can talk to small business owners and not see that that is like a genuine dynamic. And it's one of the major reasons that they hire immigrant labor. Um, but I do think as a political system, right, as a political unit that we're all citizens of this, this country and presumably have duties to each other that are above and beyond their duties to the world. I do think that having that, that easy valve of immigrant labor to fill in these positions allows us to not confront, whether it's economic or cultural, to not confront um, the, the sort of the, the depths that um, a lot of our fellow citizens are falling into, right? So it relieves us of the burden of trying to solve that problem because we just import somebody from outside. And I, I think I'm not like wholly against immigration. My parents are immigrants here, but like, I, I, I do think that there's a problem when immigration and high levels of immigration are used as a way of avoiding solving problems for Americans. Like if there, if indeed we can't find any Americans who want to open a liquor store because the crime is high, right? Instead of having that easy valve and bringing in somebody from, you know, from, from Bangladesh to run the liquor store, we should be thinking about how to solve the crime problem so that an actual American thinks that this is a good business opportunity, right? Like it relieves of, of the political pressure on the problems and the duties that we owe each other as citizens, as opposed to the duties we owe anybody else. Yeah, I, I just I don't I don't buy it. I mean, like if you saw if like if you didn't have the immigrants to open up stores, like we would solve crime. Like no, we would just say that the white racists are closing the stores, and now we have to like do some other welfare, you know, thing. I remember there was an article. Your your uh, your um, your argument sounds like something. Maybe you read this article, but uh, it was by Amy Wax. Um, maybe Jason Richwine might have written it with her, and I think American Affairs, and she was making this argue this like same argument. But uh, I was just like, wait a minute. Amy. Wax. Like now you just you just have such strong faith in the government to be able to save uh, to solve these cultural issues. I don't think I don't think we can. I mean, I don't think we can solve the black white achievement gap. I don't think we, we know how to. Uh, you don't you know, prepare, doesn't have to solve because we're not aiming for perfection here. But I, I object to the idea that it's somehow impossible. Right. To solve the crime problem in our cities. We solved it. I mean, not entirely and perfectly, but, but if we go back, you know, um, just a few years ago, the crime problem was in many places that are now not like totally out of control. The crime problem was under control and it's not, I know that there are huge racial disparities in crime, but it's not like we suddenly acquired a, a you know, a million more black men between the ages of 15 and, and 30, right? Um, it's it's the fact that this policy and policing and active policing and broken windows and the Giuliani revolution and all of this, we changed our policies. So this is not, and, and I think, yes, we need the pressure to change policies like that. We can't like circumvent them. And this is just one example, but we can't slow off our duty to people who are, are drug addicted in Detroit either. To, to flip it to the white half of this equation. Um, I don't, I, I, they are my fellow citizens. It matters that Detroit is a, is a total health hole. Okay. Detroit was once a great city and it, it's a total health hole now where, where decent people can't go and start a business. Like that, that is not an unsolvable problem. We had it solved for many years. I agree. So I, agree that, I agree that crime I, Bukele has shown us that crime can be solved. I think that crime can be solved. 
um, the wider issue, but like, can you solve, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any example of a government, you know, there's examples of government solving crime, you just go down on, on criminals. Can, has government, you know, is government good at solving um, uh, out of wedlock births within a community? Like it's probably been done, but I don't, you know, I don't have policy that I'm like sure would actually work. I don't know. And like the you idea can, that if you don't have immigration, subsidize it. What you could you could you could we stop could. subsidizing it. There's but there's third world countries that I mean they don't have much subsidies or anything, and they have very high out of wedlock birth rates and and high crimes. I mean I don't know. Like if you stop the welfare state, would you have fewer out of wedlock births? I don't know if you would or not. Like maybe it, it would. You know I support doing it, but we we uh, can we can do something that's not directly policy related. We can bring back the shame of single motherhood. Sure, sure. Um, but with, but I, I don't I don't buy that. This is all impossible. It transformed one direction. I think it's I think it's possible so to transform it back. I think that the I think it's like it's worth trying these things. The 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 idea that there's like a causation. Like I think Amy Wax just like uh, doesn't like immigration, right? And she's look. I think she's reaching for something here. The idea that the causation is like we stop immigration. Therefore, you might as well say BLM is good. Like BLM caused like all these riots at Bird. Now we're going to have pressure to like it's like a worse is more. Therefore, we're going to have pressure to now solve the problems, right? Like usually it doesn't work like that. And if you if you if you if you think that's like how it works, we have to like create pressures to solve problems. Um, just by making things worse, and that would apply to all kinds of things. There's nothing specific about immigration there. You, you don't think, though, the underlying forgetting for a moment about any particular policy here. You don't think that part of the problem with the extreme individualism that there are many good things about individualism in America, and uh, I think there's probably the reason we were able to put a man on the moon. The reason we, we are one of the wealthiest, we are the wealthiest country in world history. Right. Um, I think there are many positive things about individualism, but you, you don't acknowledge at all that this extreme version of individualism in which we have basically no duties to people around us, that the only thing we have a duty for is like, OK, I, I want my products at the lowest price possible, at the best economic system that's going to build wealth. You don't acknowledge that that has some major gaps and so, for example, I, I'm happy to acknowledge that bringing importing labor raises the GDP. Let's just say for the sake of argument, I know there are arguments on both sides of that as well, and people arguing with statistics. I'm not really familiar with that base. Let's just say that it does, that it increases the GDP. Okay? What is the counter? Like, the, the counterpoint is what, you know, what ties within, for example, a community? What is the value to a nation, um, the non-economic value of having workers alongside foremen alongside i'm using the very old 50s examples for a reason workers alongside foremen alongside capital all being from the same town attending the same churches and like knowing that they can walk past each other's houses there is an enormous social cohesion benefit of that that i think is not uh displayed in a pure economic analysis or GDP analysis. I think you can have a really crappy country um, with a very high GDP. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so that's, you know, moving towards like a different issue. Um, you know, it depends on what form this sort of search for community takes, right? If the search for community takes the form of, um, you know, socialism. There's some countries that get it out of that, that just like, you know, have this leveling equality sort of ideal. Um, then I think the benefits are not, you know, maybe there's benefits to it, but I think the cost, you know, the costs are probably higher than the benefits. If it's, you know, pr like, and if you, but if it's like a private, 
uh, religious institution. And there are, you know, many communities like, you know, if you've been to Utah or something, you know, you've known Mormons, you could, you could see this, um, that, you know, they have these communities and this is not done by government. And often these, you know, these people like the Mormons are very internationally focused. They, they, you know, they, they have this idea that we're going to, we're going to missions and we're going to be welcoming refugees. Often it's not really in contrast to the idea that you should have, um, a restriction on immigration. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not against all forms of social cohesion. It's the question of sort of what form that takes, right? And like a national project, like at this at this point in 2023 in America, like do we all do we feel we are like we hate each other? <laughs> like 90 percent of our politics is like how much red hates blue and how much blue hates red. Now we're going to say we're all in this together, and like you know, are are the the people who are dividing us and making us feel different is the is the foreigners coming in? Like I. I don't, I don't like that project, but like more local efforts, like religious communities, local communities, regional pride, I'm, I'm fine with that. So it really, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, not just the individual versus collectivism sort of spectrum. It's, uh, you know, the specifics are important to me. Yeah. I mean, look, specifics are important in the sense that it, for just to pick an example that you sort of slid up, nationalism, right, is going to be different in different nations. I, I don't feel under any obligation to support German nationalism just because I support American nationalism, right? Depends on the character of the people and, and whether the country, um, you know, ha- has something that I would call good at the heart of, of its people and its its um, essence, right? So, I mean, th- there, it's easy to imagine right now in in, uh, in Eastern Europe, right? You have a clash of, of nations um, of two different nationalisms, who are incompatible with each other. They're literally bloodying each other on a, a Verdun style, like battle line. Right. So I don't see any need to embrace uh, or, or, or to be afraid of embracing one type of communal bonds um, just because some types of communal bonds are, are, have been shown to be negative. Right. I, I just, I think there is value. And I think Michael Lind writes pretty convincingly about this. There, there is value in exactly the sort of voluntary civic organization that you say is something that you like, right? I think those, the, those kinds of bonds, those kind of voluntary bonds actually are much easier to form in an environment in which one, there aren't massive numbers of new people coming every day who have to adjust to what, what uh, the norms of the community are Two, whether, you know, labor and, and capital can be, synergistic with each other, whether they can actually have a productive relationship, um, whether, whether the worker and the foreman are, you know, enemies or whether they are adversaries who have different interests, but nevertheless recognize each other as fellow citizens. Those are very different relationships to me. And, and finally, whether people have, uh, you know, good relationships, there are plenty of bad relationships one can have with one's family, right? It's not like all family relations are good, but it seems to me that we've built a system and a culture that doesn't acknowledge that sometimes things that are short-term unpleasant, like being around your family, sometimes you'll fight with each other, or sometimes there will be bad relationships between family members, right? But I think we're seeing that people's revealed short-term preferences pulls them towards a total atomization um, that in the long term makes them very unhappy, makes it impossible to conduct affairs of state in like a reasonable way, like a, a real politics, right? You mentioned that red and blue are at each other's throat, right? Because 
underlying now we have drifted apart for good reason. Like we're polarized for good reason. It's not just because somebody is, you know, throwing red meat into the air and people are like ravenous dogs underneath. We, we have very different visions of what it is to be American now. That's, I mean, and I think it's easier to avoid that in when you have more social cohesion. And I think I'm, I, I think that one of the reasons that we have lower social cohesion is because we have millions and millions and millions of people, both legally and illegally coming to, into this country from all over the world. Many of them, as Trump said, very fine people. Um, but nevertheless, like we ourselves are not united and don't have a strong uh, sort of front to give them about what it is to be American. And I think in that situation, it's very dangerous to have people who are frantically trying to pick up what it is to be American from our public schools, right? I mean, that's a disaster in itself. Yeah. So one thing about these discussions that I think is interesting when conservatives talk about nationalism and immigration and things like this, they almost pretend as if like liberals don't have like their own culture that like is just at its root, incompatible with like what you're saying should be the national culture tying us all together. So most immigrants, you know, they settle in places like California and, and New York. The communities there believe in immigration. They being welcoming and actually accepting people is part of it's part of uh, their immigration. So if you stand up and you say, "I think America should be, you know, homogenous and we shouldn't have people who you know are different religions or different," I mean, you know, you say it in the nice way, whatever, say it in the most sympathetic way possible. A lot of Americans take offense at that. So when Trump says, you know, when Trump institutes the Muslim ban at the beginning of his presidency, uh, people genuinely go to the um, airport and they're outraged and they're holding up signs and they're getting you know very angry about it. And so like to say like, "Oh, we're gonna." you know, let's like have like less immigration because we need to be united as a country. It's like, no, because like that's conservatives. That's half the country who don't like the immigration to the other half, like being welcoming is actually part of their culture. And to say like, I want to cut off immigration so we can have a united country. It's like, no, you're, you're introducing, you're introducing a division. And like, why is there like liberal culture, like any less legitimate than what conservatives happen to want? So, the part of what you just said that I agree with is that there is a strong culture from one half of the country and, and from the other half and that they're incompatible. Um, and I, I think that it's probably unwise to introduce extremely high, historically high levels of immigration to a country that's that fractured, um, a country that has no coherent story to tell newcomers about what it is to be an American. And But but the second objection I have with the way that you're framing it is, is by the way, that many of the states that are welcoming huge numbers of immigrants, right, are, are conservative states. And there is a bit, and then even within states, there is this, that this is where some of the, the class analysis I think is correct. I mean, there, there are a lot of people in, in New York um, whose only interaction with the immigrants that they are so, uh, so much want to welcome to America is as the occasional Uber driver. Right, because they're so ensconced in, in particular neighborhoods. And New York is the least like that of the cities because it has such a long history of, of, of immigration that literally every neighborhood is coming from a different country. And, and actually, I mean, I think there's something that works well about that model exactly because people are so fractured that you end up not having the same kind of like intense sort of lines that are drawn between groups of people who, where, where you would in, I don't know, where in a town where it's like, 40% Mexican, right? It, it, it very naturally splits the community. Um, but, but for example, Texas, I mean, like 
Texas is welcoming, uh, pardon my French, a shit ton of immigrants, right? Um, there are a lot of red states that are, are, are dealing with a mass influx of immigrants. And, you know, you can call it a political stunt, which it obviously is. But it, it is ridiculous that, like, New York wants to say and talk a big game about being welcoming. But the second that some of these illegal migrants are actually sent up to New, to New York, right, they're complaining to the federal government about the burden on their systems. Well, Laredo, Texas has had the burden on their systems for 20 years or 30 years, and nobody in D.C. or in New York gives a, gives a crap about it, right? And yes, a lot of people. Then you get a lot of people who are upset about the levels of immigration because it does ruin their communities. Yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah, we got. Uh, we got sort of far things to talk about. We should, yeah. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot here to talk about. I wanted to do some of the, uh, uh, the recent news. We were going to do like, there's going to be a Trump indictment. Maybe by the time people listen to this on the January sixth stuff, I think I have a feeling that that conversation we have will go very long. Um, and so let's like save it when Trump is actually, you know, almost guaranteed to be invited by next week, pr- probably even by yeah, the I time. I had to before. ask you when, 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 uh, Richard was talking about what we were going to chat about this time, uh, <laughs> we're, we're talking about what should be on the show. And <laughs> I was, I had to ask him, which indictment is this? Cause this is what there are four outstanding. Yeah. No, this is the third. In some this, level, which indictment this, is this particular indictment? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to you've got to keep that in mind. Yeah, so this is this is, this is the big one though. This one apparently um, has huge potential, huge um, prison sentences. The uh, Stormy Daniels one doesn't matter. The documents one um, has, uh, I think, a little bit of jail time theoretically, but unlikely uh, in practice. Um, so that's going to happen. But you know, well, let's let's wait till next week because I think there's such a conversation about. Well, plus, Trump. we have to include what Trump says about the indictment on truth social or whatever he's going. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, so, it's so funny. I mean, it's so funny, like how he doesn't care. Like, you know, he's there, this guy, this prosecutor, these judge are bloodthirsty maniacs. They're lewds. I mean, it's just that there is a real, there is a real sort of, you know, there's an inspiring aspect to like the spirit of just like not caring, like no matter what happens in the universe, like he could be at the, he could be at the, uh, he could be, uh, you know, in the, he could be uh, like going to the electric chair and he would just still be tweeting like the exact same stuff. I feel like he would still be just like in <laughs> it's like really it's like really the guy who's like <laughs> the hater and the loser behind the electric chair pulling the, yeah. the lever on me <laughs> yeah i know i i could just you can't imagine him ever shutting up or like ever ever like changing what he's saying so that's that's always enjoyable i mean when, when yeah when, when criminal prosecution started i mean that's when people get serious but but not trump he's just he's just gonna be himself uh but uh I, so I did tweet something that people got a little bit upset about. I don't, I don't, I don't even check the mentions anymore. I just like drop the bombs and then I, I leave. Um, but there was <laughs> where I said, uh, you know, it, Taylor Lorenz is truly brave and masculine. And if you ever had, um, you know, like if you want, like she's been through more than a lot of people have online who would be, uh, uh, you know, who. You know, people who think who think they believe in masculinity and being brave, like if they had to go through a fraction of what Taylor Lorenz went through, they would basically have a mental breakdown. It was something to that effect. And I was inspired to do this because I was listening to um, a Substack. So Substack um, like has this thing for um, writers that they have like them on as podcast guests. So they had me on like three weeks ago or a month ago, and then they had Taylor Lorenz on like the one or two guests after. And like you know, this is like people got upset. You look at their comments; people didn't like them talking to me. A lot of them didn't like that a lot of people didn't like them talking to taylor lorenz um and 
you know, and she's like, and I believe it. Like when she talks about like, oh, she's been swatted. Like people have tried to like do this or that. Like I, you know, I, I, I totally believe it. And so I just, I, I, you know, Taylor Lorenz obviously have problems with her, but I just, what I just really dislike is the culture of like these anonymous people who think everyone else is cowardly. Everyone else is dishonest. Uh, they, they, they put nothing on the line. Absolutely nothing. You know, they, they don't show their faces. They don't say anything about their lives. And it's like, like, who are they to complain about other people? That's the thing. Like I, they, they attack me. They attack Taylor. I just don't like it. Um, and so what is your, uh, so do you have like any response or any thoughts about all that? Oh, first of all, I mean, I, I guess the reaction you have to anonymous trolls on Twitter, I have to the kind of journalism that she does and not just because it comes from the left. Although I, I struggle to find an example on the right of this kind of journalism because it almost always comes from, it's a particular, it's the daily beast is I think the most consistent in this kind of journalism, it just makes my skin crawl, which is find some random person, right? Who enters the political debate because they have a viral tweet or they have a popular account or like, um, or in the case of 2012, right? uh, They ask a question in a public forum of a presidential candidate. And here I'm thinking about Ken Bone, right? There's this, we're going to treat them as a journalist. We're going to treat these people as though they are running for president, right? We are going to go through everything in their life, whether it's relevant or not to the discussion. And we are going to make their life, we're going to expose the most embarrassing things about them. We're going to dox them. We're going to put their jobs in jeopardy, right? And then we'll cover it all by saying, oh, it's, it's, it's newsy. It's, it's, you know, relevant, right? So the, uh, to me, the, iconic example of this was with Ken Bone, where all he did was ask a question in a presidential forum, and they found his porn history and published an article about it, right? Like the guy had liked some porn comments or some, you know, something completely irrelevant. And he's a completely private citizen who inserted himself into a political debate in a very limited way, right? And Taylor Lorenz is the queen of that kind of journalism. And the idea that she has the right to complain because like, look, I don't, I don't approve of doxing people. I don't approve of, of swatting people. Although those both happen to like, they've happened. Both of those things have happened to good friends of mine. I've had my number, you know, given out, which is a relatively minor thing, but I had to endure, you know, calls day after day after day from like crazy people screaming, you know, um, screaming epithets at me and stuff, um, wouldn't stop calling. So it was like very annoying. Right. Um, Look, I mean, it's not fun. I'm not saying that people should should harass each other, but Taylor Lorenz is at the bottom, the very bottom of the list of people who have the right to complain about it because she pulls people into a maelstrom of political debate, people who have nothing other than like expressing their private opinions or posting videos on Twitter or whatever. Um, and, and she treats them as though they deserve the colonoscopy that like a presidential candidate. No, you the, so the the whether conservatives do this is an interesting question. I think they 
they sometimes do it with, uh, like, some people say libs of TikTok do this. Now, I think that that's legitimate because it's usually, like, school teachers, like, uh, you know, as, as school teachers, like, state employees, um, you know, like, g- g- people like surgeons who do gender, you know, transitions. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's, you know, public utility. That's fine. You know, well, some, I have seen a little bit of it, and I've been just going on a rant about surrogacy lately. Like, I do see this with anti-surrogacy Twitter. They'll find just, like, random people who went through surrogacy because they, you know, these, these people hate surrogacy, like whatever, you know, these gay people who decided to have kids do they you know, they'll go at create, they'll go, they'll go after them. So you do sign some, like some nasty stuff on the right too. Like that's, a, that's the only case I could think of right now. It's just like private individuals who are not state employees who are not doing anything uh, to anyone. So uh, I think the distinction here, just to clarify something, it's not a long point. Um, the distinction here is between taking something that somebody published publicly, right, on their page and quote-unquote amplifying it, right, which I think is something very different. It may or may not be appropriate. I think it mostly is. Um, But that's something very different than than because you don't like what someone is doing politically or online, going to find information they did not put publicly and putting it into the public sphere and making it available to millions of people. So that's what happened to Libs of TikTok, to Chaya, right? Um, she she might be amplifying what people are voluntarily putting into the public on TikTok, right? And and you know, but but that's a very different thing. She's not finding the home address of the blue-haired teacher with the nose ring and putting it on her account. Yeah. Well, I mean the thing okay, yeah, so that's that's fair. The the thing I was gonna say was that um uh so like people like you know, I did not say I like Taylor Lorenz or that like Taylor Lorenz is good and deserving of our love and affection. Right. Um, I I think people sort of like just do interpret like any nice thing you say about anyone um, in that way. I just like, look, she has some courage. She has some courage. She puts herself out there. She gets threats. Um, You know, if, if you, you know, she's probably at the 95th percentile of courage of like, you know, human beings. Um, I think that's just true. Um, and you know, that's what, that's what, that's all I said. And so there's that. And that's like, and that upsets people. Is, is that, is that an objectionable thing to say? Yeah. I, I know that you're trying to extend an olive branch here and I just, I can't take it because, uh, I don't think it's courageous. She complains about it all the time. The people that I know who have gone through this, okay. Have not said a word about it publicly. I know people have had to, to move, have they've had to change their addresses. Um, people who have been swatted dozens of times to the point where like the police now I would even worry about the opposite in in their case right that the police will get a call there and it'll be a legit call but they won't take it seriously because they've been swatted so many times right and local police department is aware of it um so I mean just I understand like complaining a little bit about it but she I mean she is that internet meme where it's it's the feminist shoveling the crap over the wall at the internet and then they get some back and it splatters on them and like they they say that the internet is full of misogynists or whatever it is like she is the definition of that meme she is the last person sh- who should be complaining about any of this well um, i didn't say she was i didn't say she was i didn't say she was stoic yeah I didn't say she was stoic. <laughs> like someone could be brave and then complain about something. All the time. You could let it to red light of fire and then be like, just go for the rest of your life being, I'm just such a brave guy. I did all this and I, I'm such a victim or, or whatever. Right. So that, it's, it's still a different issue, right? It's, I'm not saying Taylor is good. I'm not saying she's stoic. It's just, 
She's got, in the purest sense, she's got courage. That's all. That's all. That's all. <laughs> Liz Cheney has courage. Do you think Liz Cheney has courage? Are you going to, are you going to disagree? Yeah, with Liz I, I can see under your definitions of what you're talking about. Yeah. I can, I can more easily agree that Liz Cheney is saying things against her interests. Although of course she has other interests like a CNN contract where it's going to apply, you know, waiting for her and they're, they're going to applaud her for those things. But yes, like she's saying things to probably a lot of people that she interacts with and her voters that they don't want to hear. And that takes a certain amount of courage, right? Um, whether or not those things are correct is a totally different story, but I see what your point is. I don't know if I even qualify Taylor Lorenz. I don't, I don't even know that I'd qualify her for that because her whole shtick is I shouldn't have to deal with this. You know, we need to pass tyrannical laws so that I can write about random people and dox them right on the internet. And yet nobody can, can, uh, I mean, some of the things she complains about are legit. Like, I mean, again, swatting is really dangerous. It's a horrible thing to do um, and, and illegal. And anybody who does that should be prosecuted if we can find out who did it. Right. So that's that's one category of things. But some of the things that she complains about doesn't take any courage. I'm, I mean, I'm uh, I guess I'm I'm a more a student of that of, of Tyler, the creator or whatever. Like if you're just talking about. Twitter anons saying nasty things to you on Twitter. I mean, welcome to the internet. It doesn't take any courage. People say nasty things to me all day on the internet. I don't care. Like, what is it? I've never been successfully cyberbullied. Just close your eyes. Yeah. Well, you're <laughs> maybe not- you're maybe you're the 99th percentile of of courage. I think most people. I think most people would freak out by it. I mean, that's a, I think all of us are sort of in the public arena. We're we're a little bit courageous. Well, that may be but. true, but the level of courage required to to merely uh, tweet controversial things and have people yell at you on the internet is not a level of courage that I'm comfortable. You know, weird. Excessively lauding. It just it's seems weird. like a very yeah. low bar. It's it's weird. There's different kinds of courage because you look at like something like a war or something where all these men will go off and die. And then like today, you'll hear people say, oh, I would say that. The things you say on Twitter, I would say that, but I would get so much, you know, so much in trouble. And it's like, I don't doubt like if we had a war or something like like people would, you know, go and die. And I thought maybe they wouldn't like it when Ukraine was invaded. But, you know, disprove me. Maybe Ukrainians and Americans at this point are history are different. I don't know. Uh, but it does seem like the physical courage for men is, uh, for men at least, is more common than the uh, like being able to put up with people saying mean things about you. It does seem like they, they, there is like a distinction there. It seems like Taylor Lawrence, I don't think she would be, you know, I don't think she would be stor- uh, storming, you know, the beaches of Normandy, <laughs> but, but she does seem to have that other kind of courage more than other people do. So I guess I do think that it's a pretty low threshold when it's just in nasty words, right? If we're talking about mean stuff that people say to you, I think that it's kind of pathetic if you're whining about that, right? Um, I don't think it's a big deal for random people that you've never met before to say nasty things to you on the internet. Um, I think you're sort of mentally rare. Weak people, you, most people would, most people would not like that. Most people would have a very hard don't time. Like it. Okay. They don't like it, but I'm not going to say that it's courageous. Um, I, I just don't think that's, if it is threatening something real about your life, I think that is a very different thing. If it is, for example, threatening your job, that all the nasty people aren't just sending, um, aren't just, you know, sending you tweets that say like, you're, you're a bitch. Like, I hate you, you stupid, whatever, ugly, whatever. I, I don't want to use all the words on, this is a family podcast. No, um, <laughs> I, that I think 
I, I do honestly think the bar for a little bit of mental toughness should be higher. It's not, it doesn't take courage to just ignore. But those are the same things. Here. You usually, usually um, you get, usually the nasty stuff comes with at least implicit. They're always like, they're not just usually like F you, you're ugly. Like if you get enough of those, you're going to get a lot of, you should die or like you should get fired or I'm going to talk to your employer. So, you know, anyone who gets one category is getting a lot of the others. I'm pretty sure. So I think that the problem is, not so much one of courage when it comes to stuff like going to someone's employer or publishing someone's home address, right? Where their family lives. I think it's, it's less about courage. I mean, it does take more courage to say something in that environment. And I think that's the environment a lot of Americans think of, but it's also a matter of, of incentives. Like I don't think you can count on the average person in any country to be quote unquote courageous when their ability to feed their family is threatened, right? When they're, it just, it, it, it is, that is a high bar that shows unusual courage. But I would just separate that from, because that's a lot of what Taylor Lorenz whines about. I know that probably some of these nastier things have also happened to her, but a lot of what she's whined about in public on ABC, et cetera, et cetera, has been people are mean to me on the internet and they call me mean names. And they make fun of the fact that like, I, I don't want to say what year I was born and they call me an old lady. Okay. I'm sorry, get a, get a thicker skin, given especially the kind of journalism. If you, if you are so sensitive that you can't handle people saying mean things to you on Twitter, then you are in the wrong business. I guess, I guess I just, I'm just so, I just want an olive branch. I just want to bring Taylor Lorenz along and say, we can, we can have something in common, but I, I get it though. I, I get, I get the problems with Taylor Lorenz too. Okay, let's uh, let's save all the January sixth. The Hunter Biden. We'll finally. I know you want to talk about Hunter, and as we'll finally do that next week. We'll no, talk I want about to talk Hunter about January Joe. Uh, we'll talk about Joe too. Okay, next week. Bye. Bye.